to another episode of Moody's Talks Muniland, the podcast about credit dynamics in U.S. public finance. I'm your host, Nick Samuels, from Moody's U.S. public finance team in New York. We're doing something a little different this time. Our colleague, Marsha Van Wagner, a vice president on our state's team, is retiring after many years. So we're joining her farewell tour. Marsha started her career as an academic after receiving a PhD in economics, and we're fortunate she found the ivory tower a bit lonely. You know, I think initially I really thought I was going to stay in academia. And then after a few years of that, I decided I really, it really didn't make me that happy. So I started looking around for things that were more, where I could use my skills and be kind of more involved in the real world. Ultimately, she climbed to a high level in New York City government before joining us at Moody's. For us in public finance, Marsha became the go-to analyst to help translate the complex into the comprehensible. But now, if you want to discuss the production possibilities curve, you'll need to catch up to her on her bike somewhere in Brooklyn. We'll hear about her career path and take advantage of her experience to give us some insight on a variety of topics, including how the forces that drove the inflation crisis of the 1970s and 80s provide insight into today's soaring inflation environment and potential credit stress. But first, more on that credit stress. As states and local governments face inflation-driven financial challenges, sales taxes are set to continue increasing. The added revenue is not a panacea, but helps governments offset some of the financial turmoil. To discuss the dynamic, let's welcome Doug Goldmacher, an analyst who straddles our state and local government teams, and someone I've wanted to have on this podcast for a long time. Doug, welcome to Muniland. Thanks, Nick. It's good to be here. So inflation is driving up expenses for everyone. State and local governments are faced with increased costs for operations, wages and other labor costs, construction, many things. And consumers are taking a hit on everything from gas to groceries. So something counterintuitive is happening. At the same time that inflation in the form of rising prices might make consumers pull back from spending why are we seeing sales taxes perform so strongly? So it's really kind of an interesting thing, Nick. You're right. Inflation as a whole has a lot of negative consequences for governments. But there's a sort of built-in credit hedge, which is that as inflation rises, so does sales tax. And, and the mechanism for this really kind of makes sense. So even as inflation causes prices to increase, which is basically what it does, the taxes, the sales tax, is based on the total amount which is being sold. So as the price increases, you get more taxes. It's kind of an automatic thing, which just increases the amount of revenue governments get. All right. Give us a few examples then of where sales taxes are doing especially well. Yeah. So I'll start by saying that it's pretty much across the whole country because it's kind of an automatic thing. But I do have some good examples. So you follow Texas, of course. You're the, you're the state lead for Texas. And in June, they saw sales taxes increase 11% versus the previous year, which is a pretty impressive number. Uh, I don't have June numbers for New York, but in May, New York also saw an 11% jump. And Nassau County uh, in New York, which is a, a big suburban county right outside New York City, saw its May uh, sales tax figures increase 21.2%. These are all big places, and that's a pretty substantial increase for them. Right. So you mentioned that there are partial benefits for state and municipal governments here. Every state's sales tax base is different since they make their own tax laws, and some states have broader sales taxes than others. What's the impact of that? Yeah, it's a big impact, actually, and it can go in a lot of different ways. So, for example, 
The only state which puts a tax on prescription drugs is Illinois. And until some recent changes, only 12 taxed groceries. So the idea is this. There are certain things which even in an inflationary environment, when when people are feeling a lot of pressure, you're just not going to cut back on, or at least you won't cut back on as much. You can't not buy your prescription drugs if you've got a prescription. You're not going to not buy groceries. So the more the broader the sales tax is, the less you can escape it. And so even as inflation makes you cut back, the government is still going to get revenue from these broader taxes because they're they may not be inflation proof, they may not be recession proof, but they're the last things you cut. And so the the states are really going to benefit. On the other hand, you've also got a couple of states which just don't have any sales tax at all, not at the state level, not at the local level. So you know, they just don't see that benefit from it. And so they take the full hit from inflation and the impact on their finances, the impact on what they have to buy, their expenses, without seeing any revenue lift from a sales tax. Okay, so in that context, what state and local governments does this matter the most for? Who is the most reliant on sales taxes? Right. So this is the other half of it. It's not just how broad, but how important is it to your revenue source? So uh, the Tax Foundation did some really good work on that. And this is based on uh, pre-pandemic numbers, 2019. But combined state and local governments in Nevada get 42% of their revenue from sales taxes. Uh, Tennessee gets 41%. And there are a whole bunch of states which get pretty big numbers. But they're also smaller numbers too. So New Jersey governor's uh, 2022 budget called for about a 28% reliance on sales taxes, but local governments don't get any sales tax at all. Uh, In Ohio, there's a lot of variation. So cities get revenue from income taxes. School districts tend to be more property tax reliant, although some of them also get income taxes. But counties are the ones which get the sales tax there. So you see a lot of variation. And uh, in some places, it's a huge amount. I mean, as I said, 42% from Nevada, that's a pretty big whack. Other places, doesn't matter at all. Let's hope that the economy improves, but assume that it doesn't and people hold off on buying big ticket items. It stands to reason then that the potential sales tax lift will weaken too, right? Yeah, so I think the way to think about this is that there's a limit here. I mean, yes, the the correlation between higher inflation and higher sales tax collections dates back pretty far. We've got good data showing this, this strong correlation as far back as 1970. It's solid. But there, there is a point where it just stops working. As inflation starts really, really ramping up, and we are a long way from that kind of figure. I mean, I'm talking much higher inflation than we've seen lately. And hopefully, as you say, we don't see that kind of inflation. But when you start getting to a certain point, and especially when it starts kicking into a recession, people just can't keep spending the same amounts. And as they cut back, even with the higher amount they have to pay per the amount of goods and services they get, the total declines. Consumption just takes too much of a hit. And so the sales tax first will start not increasing as much as it would have. And, and eventually it could actually start petering out and going in reverse. That's it's in far more extreme territory than we're in now, though. And, and you know, again, hopefully we don't get to that point. All right. Doug Goldmacher, thanks so much. Marsha Van Wagner joins us as she heads out the door into retirement after a distinguished career here at Moody's. 
Let's welcome her to talk about her journey and hear her thoughts on where some aspects of public finance may be heading, including the impact of inflation. Marsha, it's a milestone. You're retiring. Congratulations. And thanks for making one more appearance on Muniland. So you have a PhD in economics. And one of the many things you do well is break down the complex into the understandable. So we thought we could spend some time asking you some questions about how the current inflationary environment compares to previous ones and to some other things, as long as you won't frighten us. Does that work? That works. Thanks for having me for my last appearance on Uniland, too. Nick, I'm very flattered. Before that, though, you took a really interesting path to Moody's 12 years ago. You started out as an academic economist, and then you moved to one of the New York City budget watchdogs. You've worked in a city agency, and you worked for the city itself in another high-level position. Tell us about those experiences. Sure. Well, you know, I think initially I really thought I was going to stay in academia, and then after a few years of that, I decided I really... really didn't make me that happy. So I started looking around for things that were more where I could use my skills and be kind of more involved in the real world, I guess. So uh, my first opportunity was actually in economic development because I had a background in uh, regional economic development analysis. And that just sort of eventually by, you know, a series of events I won't go into, uh, led me to um, a job doing fiscal oversight for a state agency that was an outgrowth of the New York City fiscal crisis in the 1970s, which, by the way, was fodder for my senior thesis back when I was in college. So my things kind of came full circle. And once I was on that path, there were a number of different options for me. And I, I worked for a nonprofit for a while, also the Citizens Budget Commission that does fiscal oversight for the city of New York. And then I got a job at the city controller's office as deputy controller and another budget and sort of revenue analysis oversight position. And then this Moody's job was really kind of a logical extension of all of the skills and knowledge I had gained in all those various positions. Okay. So like you said, based on your thesis topic on the New York City fiscal crisis, you have context for the ups and downs of municipal finance, to say the least, and you've seen several down cycles. So given that, how do you describe the fact that even with their challenges, the credit quality of most cities and states has held up relatively well. I think it is a testament to the institutional structure of states and local governments in the United States that uh, states in particular have a lot of sovereign powers and they're able to set their revenue um, policies and to make spending adjustments as needed. Uh, and I also believe that there has been growing professionalization in budgeting and financial management over the last several decades. There is professional organizations that really promulgated good practices. Um, and I think that that's something that you know states have learned from each other and really contributed to their ability to weather these you know un- uncertainty and sometimes you know, uh, fall off in revenue and economic activity. So now the municipal market is facing another challenge, which is inflation. It's at its highest point since 1981. How does the experience of high inflation of the 1970s and early 1980s apply to today and give us clues to potential credit stress? 
Right. Well, I think all of these periods have some similarities and differences, and I do think that there are some significant differences between today's inflation episode and that that was occurring in the 70s and early 80s. Part of that is just the longevity of the inflationary period. Back in the 70s, really, inflation had started um, growing in the late 60s. So there were years and years of inflation building up in the system, even before the double whammy came of the oil crisis, which then created, of course, a supply side uh, shock. And that is a similarity, of course, that we're seeing now in terms of uh, rising oil prices and all the supply chain problems that are pushing costs up on the supply side. Another difference, I think, is the is the Federal Reserve. I think the Federal Reserve Bank and its policies are more um, more refined and more attuned. And of course, there's better and more uh, more timely data for them to look at. So I think that that's another area where there's more adept policy management, you know, compared to the 70s, where I think there was a lot of kind of flailing about before before the situation got uh, in control. Moody's outlook for global credit conditions is more negative now than a year ago, particularly due to the uncertainty around the Russia-Ukraine conflict and geopolitical tensions. So two questions. Have we seen anything, say, in the last 40 years where there's been this much volatility in the economy? And so far, the impact has generally been quite muted for U.S. public finance. Do you think that will stay the same? Um, so the first part of your question about periods with a lot of volatility, I mean, I, I, I would have to have sort of the numbers in front of me. There certainly have been periods of volatility, I think, around the uh, Iraq war in the early 90s that created um, a lot of volatility, but it was pretty short-lived period. There was also, uh, you know, some rate increases in the later part of the 90s that created some volatility. We had 9-11, we had the the dot-com crash, you know, there's a lot of concern about inflation. There may be some concern about GDP trends, but, you know, for state and local governments, a lot of the strength of their revenue side comes from incomes, which have been doing pretty well, and employment has continued to grow. So there's there haven't been, like, real impacts that would be filtering through to, to state budgets and to local budgets at this point. What about the social risks from inflation, such as higher food prices, higher utility prices, higher gasoline prices? How much will that impact credit? Well, that's a good question. And I think, you know, we have yet to see how how long this is going to to last. We've already seen some impacts because we've seen uh, states and local governments trying to mitigate some of the effects of affordability problems by, say, suspending the gas tax or... Uh, having like sales tax holidays on different categories of goods and services, um, and that certainly is going to you know impact their their revenue collections. And you know, the housing costs are an issue. Um, that situation is probably going to lead to uh, cooling of the housing market. And as that slows down, that's going to slow some other sources of economic growth because a, a strong housing market tends to drive a lot of other. Um, a lot of other activity. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see some impacts um, and it really kind of depends on on what's happening with the macroeconomy 
um, and the duration of you know all of these like intertwined uh, events that we are living through at the moment. Okay, Marsha Van Wagner, thanks so much for joining us on Muniland, and thanks so much for joining us at Moody's. We'll miss you. <laughs> I'll miss you too, Nick. And that's it for this episode. Join us the second Thursday of every month. We'll talk with you then. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.